Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS approach to their practice. We offer one-on-one and group mentoring to support clinicians so you can better handle the uncertainty and manage the challenges that show up in clinical practice. So if interested, reach out at tkex.org and join our community on our Facebook discussion group. So today I am very lucky to be joined by physiotherapist and researcher, Kevin Wernley. He is a superstar and doing a lot of great work for us in our industry. And I'm keen to dive into some of the takeaways from his research for, for clinicians, some advice with navigating some of the challenges that show up so that we can all be working towards applying a more evidence-based approach to our clinical practice. So Kevin, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Mate, the famous question, and I'm sure a colleague of yours named Pete asked this one <laughs> fairly often. What's your story? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, my story. I'm a, I'm a, uh, just a average Joe from the Perth Hills, um, born and raised to Swiss parents, and they moved here just before me and my twin sister were born. Um, I've always had a love for sport and wanted to be a professional sports star, I guess, when I was uh, when I was a younger. And then when I realized I wasn't quite good enough, I wanted to help those uh, who were good enough uh, be better and stay better. Um, and that kind of led me down a sports science route. And then, um, yeah, some other friends were doing physio a couple of years above me and, and persuaded me or, or recommended that I do physio. There's more options there. And um, I hadn't high enough grades. So that was the path. There's always going to be sports and then um, took a real liking to musculoskeletal um, presentations. I, I think it affects more people, uh, elite athletes. They certainly need need help from time to time, but I think um, overall their life is usually pretty good. They've certainly got some stresses that other people don't, um, but I really sort of grew a liking to, to trying to help more and more people, just the average Joes who are, who are struggling through life. Um, Moved to the Gold Coast after I graduated and then through a serendipitous series of events at one of Pete O'Sullivan's courses, um, I got offered uh, or there was an opportunity to apply for a PhD, I applied for that and um, and moved back to Perth, was lucky enough to be selected for that. Um, so the com- that started in 2017 and completed the end of last year. Um, so a- an awesome experience to learn from some incredibly, incredibly bright people um and yeah i think they're the real superstars of the of the industry um uh yeah i guess i've 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 kind of now moved into more a digital health uh role as well as still working clinically and completing some research um i I suppose that's all in a quest to try and help as many people as possible you know i think in our four clinical rooms or the four walls of our clinical rooms um it's it's awesome it's a great feeling to help people and it's really rewarding and that's why we do it but you sort of see some typical stories and some repetition and um, there's this kind of journey that people take to get better. It also means that people have to travel to me to see me. Um, they have to pay quite a lot of money to see physios um, and pain disproportionately affects people of a lower socioeconomic status and often in rural and remote areas. So um, that just doesn't sit well with me. And uh, I've got a bit of a, a tech background. Well, tech background, I, I, I like technology um, and yeah, figure technology is a great way to try and, and reach more people, make healthcare a bit more accessible and equitable. Um, so that's led me down that path. Um, and yeah, that's kind of split my split my time with a bit of digital health work for a few startups uh, in a mental health space and one we've just started in endometriosis um, and also working clinically, a bit of research supervision and, and trying to finish off a few more papers for my PhD. Like that's my story jobs at once at the moment or yeah there's a there's a few juggling juggling yeah. of of jobs but I, I quite like that i think um i never really wanted to be in the clinic full time um massive respect for people that um do that um i yeah i uh, i found when i first graduated and i was in that full-time role off and had more questions than answers um and having having done some honors research was looking at doing some more research hence this journey sort of unfolded yeah wow it's um really cool and and uh, kudos to trying to um, make the this message spread across in a more of a community based setting rather than you know one on one we only have limited time and if we can reach the masses as you're doing with your research and and digital health as well there's a ton of potential there so we need more passionate people like you in that space 
Yeah, thanks, Dan. And I think um, I mean that's something that I really love doing with the podcast as well. I mean, we still get messages, or I still get messages around that um, from that helping people, um, and that was done yeah two years ago now. So um, it's in a way, it's a, a really nice gift that keeps on giving, and and I refer lots of patients to that as well, and they they really feel validated. They feel like um, a lot of themselves is is being. Yeah, and I that's something I really liked about the podcast as well. You know, that was done some, done almost two years ago now um, and we still get messages. I still get messages from people saying, uh, this has really helped me. I refer lots of patients there and, and uh, it's almost a bit of a gift that keeps on giving, um, you know, no longer involved in that. But um, yeah, it's, it's an awesome feeling to know that it's still helping people. I still send lots of patients there and they often, one of the, one of the um, common comments is like, I felt like you were talking directly to me. And I think patients and people with, with pain need some more positive language and narratives to support them in between appointments. seems like the world is um, full of uh, a negative social narratives around pain. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a bit of a nice, a nice bit of touch point between their appointments to um, help them. Maybe it's explained in a slightly different way or they can hear themselves in, in other patients' sort of lived experiences. So I think that's really, really helpful for people. There's so much value and uh, I've shared Empowered Beyond Pain to uh, at least 10 patients in the past two years. So you're definitely making an impact. And I had this question as the final one, but I'm curious, is there any chance of a <laughs> new season coming up in the works in the future? Yeah, so I'm, uh, willing I'm no to longer... Pay, willing to pay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's not, it's no, it's no easy job to uh, record a podcast, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, there's lots that goes in behind the scenes. Um, yeah, I'm no longer involved in that, so I'm not the right person to talk to. Maybe we'll start another one. Um, there's been talks around um, with a few different groups, uh, so who knows what will happen. Um, but I, I think, yeah, there's such fantastic uh, ways people can listen to them in the car. They can listen to them while they're walking, while they're cleaning, um, and yeah, it's uh, like I said, I think hearing the patient voice is really important for that. Yeah, especially in, in their own language and they can definitely relate and resonate with other people's yes. experiences. That's yeah, totally. Huge value. Um, and you've done a lot of work with your recent PhD and, and the recent paper that came out from protection to non-protection. It was freaking awesome with the mixed methods, the qualitative and the quantitative aspects. If, if there were a few key takeaways that you'd hope clinicians would would leave with if they were reading along? What would some of the main ones be? Yeah, I think the number one one uh, take home would be that people go through this journey of, as the title suggests, um, being in a very protective state. Um, and I, I really like, I'm biased obviously, because I'm the author and made the figure, but I really like figure, I think it's figure two in the paper, the kind of the infographic um, that really tells this story, I think, in a really nice, easy way. The paper is open access, so feel free to have a look and, and read. And, and um, we've written it in a, such a way that the, there's quotes embedded in the results. So um, nothing's as powerful, as we've talked about, nothing's as powerful as patient voices. Um, and they help to really drum home some of the key messages. But the key, the key one is for me is that the people go through this journey initially um, and maybe I'll just frame that study a little bit more. Um, we got recruited 12 people with disabling low back pain. These had high disability levels. So their um, median Roland Morris disability questionnaire was 17 and a half out of 23. Um, in my systematic reviews where I looked at common randomized control trials, the average or the, yeah, I think the average was around five to six, seven out of 24 in the Roland Morris. So um, these were highly disabled people that were off work, that a lot of them had had surgeries that had um, injections and medications and were still no good. Um, and then they, we measured their movements and postures with wearable sensors. We measured their pain and function and then a whole bunch of psychological factors, things like pain, self-efficacy, back pain beliefs, um, pain catastrophizing, kinesiophobia, um, body perceptions, pain control, trust in their back. Um, we did that before they had an intervention um, before they had in the intervention, I also did qualitative interviews with them with a real lens on understanding their beliefs around what the relationship between movement and posture was. Um, and then they had a 12 week cognitive functional therapy intervention. Uh, and then I did all those things again. Uh, so measured their movements and postures, the pain, activity, limitation, those psychological factors, and did another interview with them. 
Uh, and some key themes that came out of that baseline interview was really around protection. Um, so lots of people talked about these lived experiences when they're moving and posturing themselves of their back feeling tight, tense, stiff, locked up, rigid, uh, seized up. Um, and we've kind of dubbed that non-conscious protection. So that's almost a, we think it's this bodily response of the, the system just being in a tense protective state, usually because of a number of different things, things like just pain itself can make people tense, um, often driven by beliefs of damage or something being not right or injured um, in, in their body. And that was driven predominantly by healthcare practitioners or that those beliefs came from healthcare practitioners, but also just societal narratives. Uh, so there was this sort of unconscious, subconscious, non-conscious, automatic tension and protection that was occurring in their bodies that they were describing. But then they also talked about consciously and purposefully protecting their back. So I'm careful with the way that I move. I keep my back straight. I protect my back. I brace my core. I use my legs when I lift. Um, I avoid certain tasks. And that was again driven by this belief of something being wrong, structurally wrong in their back um, from a damage perspective, or it was from fear of re-injury or just pain itself, or from fear of the future and not being able to do things in the future this sort of uncertainty around why they still had pain. Um, there was diagnostic uncertainty and, and those sorts of things all drove these conscious um, efforts to protect. Um, and then in the follow-up interview, the initial stage that people talked about was learning and 11 out of 12 of these people improved and, and improved quite a lot. Um, their, their roads to improvement were very varied, um, which was something we found in the, the um, first initial paper from this study, which is also in the European Journal of Pain in, in 2021. Um, but the, the over, overarching theme was around learning to relax, breathe, move normally, resulted in less pain during my painful movements and postures. Um, and this, this gave them an element of control back in their life, but they had to consciously focus on protecting less. So that theme was conscious non-protection. Um, and, and lots of people ended up in that kind of group, um, that qualitative group at the end. So there was about four, four out of 12 ended up in that group. The other five, uh, sorry, seven, um, they progressed, or I think of it like a graduation. They, the other five went through that step, but then they progressed one step further to automatically doing those non-protective patterns in their movements and their postures. So they went through that conscious non-protection stage and then they progressed to a non-conscious non-protection stage. So an automatic, habitual, um, normal movement and posture. They'd forgotten about their back and they were just living. Um, and this was secondary to really powerful experiences that occurred during their treatment. So through behavioral um, experiments and behavioral learning and safety learning. Um, as well as individualized education. Um, so uh, yeah, this kind of journey initially, and this is very similar to a learning model, which is called the conscious competence model, where initially you're um, non-conscious incompetent, you're, non -con you're not aware that you're incompetent, um, and then you're made aware that you're incompetent, so you're conscious incompetence, and then you progress to working on a skill or a learning a task, and then you're consciously competent. You have to focus on that task. And then eventually you become automatic with that, that kind of um, stage where everything kind of feels natural and you're non-consciously competent. Um, so we, we, we drew similarities to that model um, in, in my PhD, as well as the, the forgotten joint scale, which I think summarizes nicely what I think uh, our goal is for our patients. And that is to forget about their painful body part. I think the, the gold standard for people with pain for any body parts, but particularly the back is to forget they even have a back. You know, if I roll my ankle, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily still be thinking about that ankle once it's healed. And that's a good sign. Um, you know, I've, I've fractured one of my ankles. I often can't remember which one it is. Um, so that's to me a good outcome. And if people can forget about their back, then I think that's a really good place to be. So a long winded answer, um, but going through that journey. And I often show this model to, to um, 
people with pain as well to say, hey, you know, it's um, it's okay that this is a process. And for some people, it happens really quickly. And for some people, it um, takes lots of dives and turns and ups and downs. And that's usually the case. And that's okay. Uh, so, so using that and knowing that people have gone before them can be a really validating thing for people with pain. And give them that hope that there is a direction moving forward for them, yeah. especially if they've had years and years of trying to, you know, fix their pain away and they still have it, they can lose that hope. So if they've got some, almost back to the, your podcast of lived ex- examples and experiences, they can see that this is like normalizing the, the trajectory. Yes. It's, it can be up and down, but there is hope that you can live a life well yep. with this back pain. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm um, really uh, love one of the quotes that I just have to quote right now. It's um, I'm not sure which participant, if, if you know as well, let, let me know, Kevin. But it was um, before I'd be bending my knees, keeping my back straight, trying to pick up correctly. Now I don't give a fuck. I don't think about it. I just do it. And that's to have a like that kind of response says a lot to that participant's experience and the value of this process of getting them to, to move as like normally and move freely, that thoughtless, fearless movement as Louis Gifford promoted. Mm. Yeah. So that was participant 11. Um, he was a young, young chap, um, who was, he had, uh, I think three surgeries, the last one being a spinal fusion. Um, and that was all paid for under the workers' compensation scheme. Um, and he was on opioids. Um, he had a really tough journey getting off those, um, during that 12 week period. Um, yeah, it was a great story. Um, and he's doing amazing work now. Um, he actually features on episode 20 of the empowered beyond pain podcast as well. That's awesome. That's so cool. I think, um, it helps not only clients, patients, but clinicians to know that there are examples where people can go into these movements. And I can note uh, another quote that mentioned Jefferson curls. Um, and yeah, that was one of their like uh, movement experiments that would have been quite a interesting experience for them I'm, I'm sure totally yeah and i think uh, that's probably worth um talking about if you don't mind me um, yes please quoting that one so this guy was uh he was a young probably about 30 years old um actually wasn't would i say he was quite just he was still lifting in the gym um deadlifting like plus 100 kilos squatting 60 70 kilos um but was terrified of anything outside of neutral, terrified. Like, you know, picking up his dog and his dog squirming was something that would in, like induce a lot of fear in, in him, um, fear of further damage. Um, was incredibly tense and braced through all postures. Um, so although he was still in the gym and working and so on and so forth, um, he lived in a very neutral uh, place. Uh, his box was very small and this is true of a few different Uh, participant 12 comes to mind as well for this Um, and his belief was that and I think there might even be a quote in that paper if not it's in the appendix around uh, I asked him what do you think will happen if you bend forward Um, that was one of his tasks and I said what do you think tell me what's going on through your head as you as you bend forward and he said "Uh, if I bend forward my disc is going to bulge out the back and compress my spine Uh, that's what I think will happen um so you can imagine the the fear response if that's what you've been told if that's what you believe if you had a, he's had a scan his gp said don't do anything apart from swim um you know that that is a f- terrifying experience like imagine like, put yourself in that person's shoes for a second and think if i bend i could be a paraplegic or my my disc will touch my spine like of course you're not going to bend um you know he wasn't educated around scan findings his gp well-meaning and and using the tools that they that they had at their disposal i'm sure they weren't maliciously in, intending to create fear of course not um but uh that's inevitably what happened um and you know he in the second session um, the physio uh, had him do a Jefferson curl, um, and he talks about um, that in in the the um, process of of non conscious non protection, um, progressing to that area. And and I'll I'll, I'll just maybe uh, speak about the quote verbatim. Um, so the uh, basically the it was there was in the paper it says the reconceptualization from protect my damaged back to it's safe to move this sort of schema of protection to this schema of safety in movement was facilitated by two key factors experiential learning and personalized evidence-based education 
The powerful experiences of less or no pain during threatening tasks made many participants question their previous understanding of what was causing their pain. These experiences often resulted in participants no longer thinking that their body was fragile and vulnerable. Um, so the quote here from participant four is, but the biggest thing would have been the Jefferson curls, which are, as, as many people will be aware, round back deadlifts. Uh, and this occurred during the second session. Just having my worst case scenario put in front of me, the scenario where I go, if I do this, 100% my back would break. That was his belief. Um, and then when you do it and you're fine, then that just, yeah, that flips your world upside down. So that was a really pivotal moment for him. You know, his belief was that that would damage his back and, and he'd be incapacitated. Um, and when he did it and he was fine, it just disconfirms, puts a huge question mark on your previous belief. And, and I think that speaks to an important point, which maybe is a second take home from this paper, is that people learn well through ex experiential learning or experiences um and perhaps they don't learn as well from lecturing and didactic um you know education um so that kind of maybe if we use the word pain explaining um in in that process um so yeah I, I thought that was a really profound moment for him well i know it was um and it speaks to that idea around experiential learning that's it's uh, so easy to education for education to become like a passive intervention like a tool that you just throw at someone and yeah. what is actually more sticky for someone is getting that uh, violation of their expectation through a movement experiment and I can definitely think of even myself as a clinician even though I didn't have any disabling back pain I would have these kind of rules and have uh, rule governed behavior in, in my own training experience so I think mm. reflecting on for the listeners if there's clients I can think of some right now that just avoid say twisting motions or have all these kind of rules given to them by well-intentioned clinicians that the way forward is perhaps instead of just, you know, giving them a, a fact or, or handing them over a research paper, getting them to do that experiment and the value of that can be seen with, with your work, that, that stickiness of that, yes. you know, breaking the rules that they've been given through yep. the movement experiments. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And and um, if we if on that theme of breaking the rules, there was a quote, um, yeah, doing everything the opposite way to what you're told feels better, way better. Um, and, and, you know, these this idea that um, belief transcends experiences during the baseline interviews, there was a, a lady participant uh, five, um, she talked around, uh, yeah, I, I sit up tall, but it feels worse for my back, but I just thought I meant to do it. That, that's not verbatim, but something along those lines, you know, um, it, it feels worse, but I think it's better for me or I've been told it's better for me. So I continue it. This idea that that belief of I've got to follow these postural rules um, actually being stronger than, you know, she felt better when she slouched. Um, and that was quite common. People would talk about these experiences of I'd ask them, well, what, in what movements and postures do you feel better? Um, oh, you know, when I'm lying on my back or actually when I'm slouching, but I, I shouldn't do that, you know. Um, and what is it about those positions that make it feel better? What do you feel in your body? Oh, I just feel my back relaxing um, or, you know, those sorts of things. Um, so that, they were really common themes during the baseline interviews in, in, in many of the participants, most of them actually. It's, uh, it's crazy how common that is that we're uh, abiding by these shoulds and shouldn'ts based on previous experiences and uh, acknowledgement of the impact that our approaches, our treatments, our narratives can have such a lasting impact on yeah. someone's livelihood. Um, so we, if we were to segue to, to the application and I'm, I'm thinking for clinicians who would be in private practice and that come across your research and similar research on, on the, this kind of, um, more uh, movement optimist approach if i was to give it a name mm -hmm. um, how would you what advice would you give to some clinicians if they were in a clinic team where other clinicians would have perhaps differences in opinions uh, amongst what would be best practice so with acknowledging some of the barriers to to practicing this way what, what might be some advice yeah i think there's always going to be differences of opinions that's a fact of life um uh, I think approaching it with curiosity is a really good place to, to be. Um, and, and there is 
I mean, when we look at the data, there's there's not really strong evidence that any approach is better than than the other. Um, on average, everything will work pretty well in the six to twelve week treatment period, and you will have uh, a large improvement, and then people will kind of regress a little bit. Um, uh, and it kind of doesn't, you know, it doesn't appear to matter what you do. Um, even in in my first systematic review, um, you know, there was uh, like treatments that were looked to be on opposite ends of the scale. Some that say brace and tense and some that say um, move more and relax. Um, and, you know, the, the, the outcomes were on average the same. Um, there is some emerging treatments. Uh, I know there's a, there was a trial by Howard Schubiner um, and certainly the cognitive functional therapy trials, um, which another one is coming out soon um, for that one. So it'll be interesting to see the results there, but they showed, they appear to show some um, better effect sizes. Um, but yeah, I think uh, approaching it with curiosity and, and saying, hey, can I, can I sit in with you? Uh, can you sit in with me? I'm really keen to, to learn more about this and get feedback from yourself. Um, uh, I think, you know, there, uh, it's true of any clinical space. Uh, I was in Sydney at a, a conference recently for mental health um, and a lot of the conversation was around different clinicians almost giving up their power and, um, and sharing, sharing, you know, working together, which, um, you know, I, I think in a, in a private funded system, there is this sort of sense of ownership over our, over our people and over our potentially our profession, but certainly over our patients as well. Um, but yeah, being open to those sorts of things um, and and really approaching it with curiosity, understanding why why have you done this? Tell me about this. At the end of the day, I think it comes down to um, how well we're supporting our patients. Um, and you know, there's differing opinions of what good support looks like. Uh, my my personal take on that is if if they don't have to see a physio or a health professional. Uh, and they're managing well, or they've got to the stage where they don't have to even manage, they just live, uh, that's a really good outcome for me. Um, it's not a good outcome for your bank account. And maybe that's a conversation around um, service models and payment models, uh, healthcare models that are service-based, not value or outcomes-based. Um, but that's really, that's a tricky place to work in and uh, a tricky problem to tackle. Um, but that's my opinion of what I think a good, good outcome looks like. And, and maybe they need a few booster sessions. Um, sometimes it's better for them to see you very frequently and get good positive messages if that's what you're providing, um, in which case, absolutely, because as I mentioned, there is so many negative um, yeah, narratives out there. So um, bolstering those and, and coming and doing a workout with you and you reinforcing uh, positive beliefs and maybe changing a few towards more um, contemporary narratives. Um, I, but I, it's challenging and, and you, don't, you don't win friends by confronting people, I don't think, um, and you don't really get anywhere. It's like the backfire effect. If someone's got strong beliefs about their back being bulged and damaged and that's what's causing their pain, you can't just evidence them, uh, throw evidence at them and, and um, expect their beliefs to change. It's like if someone's got strong beliefs, beliefs about a religion and you contradict that, their belief gets stronger, not weaker. <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that would be my advice. Yeah. I love the, uh, just normalizing that there's going to be differences in approaches and like expect that. Um, yeah. I, I think it, it can be easy uh, I'm imagining for new grads who come across evidence-based practice to expect in placement that everyone will almost practice in a, the same way, but that's just not going to be the, the case. And even um, two clinicians from similar training experiential backgrounds would have different takeaways from the same research paper. And Absolutely. Data and different lenses and perspectives. And that's, that's part of the process. There's nothing necessarily yeah. inherently wrong with that. It's, it can be so easy to be like, this is right and totally. This is wrong. Yes. And there's probably two more things I'd like to add on to that. The first one comes back to an earlier point about the person just doing Jefferson curls. Um, that was completed by someone with a lot of training, um, a very experienced physiotherapist. Um, yeah, he's received lots and lots of mentorship and training and, um, you know, uh, master's programs and those sorts of things, extra training um, in CFT. Um, you know, you've got to really know what you're doing um, when it comes to that. You can't just get every patient to do a 20 kg Jefferson curl when they're totally frightened that their back is going to explode out their, their bolt, disc bulge is going to explode out their back. Um, because if that isn't done in a controlled, safe environment, uh, that can go pear shaped. 
Um, and that brings me on to the second point, which is uh, for, for sort of um, for physios and clinicians out there is to find something that you're comfortable with and you're confident producing. Um, uh, we know that there's a large chunk of the therapeutic effect uh, of why people get better is just therapeutic alliance with your clinician. Um, so if you get along well, you build a good rapport. Um, you, you're confident in the way that you deliver things, which can be challenging in sort of certain scenarios, especially when you're trying to implement new strategies that you might have read about or heard about. Um, but I think, um, you know, if we were to hierarchy and have treatment A being better than treatment B, if it was that simple, which it's not, um, but uh, a confident therapist doing treatment B is probably still better than a, a, a hesitant um, therapist doing treatment A, even though treatment A is quote unquote better. Uh, and, and Pete gives a really good example um, in this, you know, if you're going rock climbing and the person that is belaying you is really nervous, the, the person at the bottom with you with, in control of the rope and kind of in control of your life if you fall, um, if the person that is completing that and holding the rope beneath you is really nervous and sweating and hesitant and a bit out of, you know, not the opposite to relax, you're not going to relax and you're going to tense up and you're not going to trust that person. Um, and conversely, if that person is confident and like giving you good encouragement and handling, you know, the, the situation, handling any challenges well with ease, you just have trust and faith in that. And I think that's true of clinicians as well. So find something that really resonates with you that you feel like you can uh, confidently produce and de um, yeah, develop and, and, and work with and deliver uh, and, and work with that. Yeah, there's um, hopefully people aren't taking away that we need a Jefferson Curl, everyone with chronic disabling back pain, making sure you just only if they have a certain score in, in the in questionnaires for visibility, but um, <laughs> can be so easy to have that uh, reductionist kind of takeaway. So appreciate you going through the nuances to mm. that. And then it talks to like uh, what shows up for us clinicians in terms of there's research showing if, if the, our own beliefs are of uh, kind of protection or we have our fear doing certain movements that's going to show up in a consult totally. whether we like it or not so respecting yeah. that like acknowledging that just like we would with a client <laughs> maybe we can have a similar approach of uh, providing that safety and support for our colleagues that you know it's we're not going to shame you for for not yeah. um, you know jefferson curling <laughs> all your clients it's, yeah. it's more hey this is real and embodied this fear and like let's let's go through it let's let's be more curious rather than combative yeah really like that dan really nice summary and and um Oh no, my thoughts, my thoughts gone from that. It might come back to me. <laughs> yeah. When it comes back, um, all good. But I wanted to, um, to segue into, in terms of the, the patient experience, uh, from, from your research readings and, and also from what you've heard, uh, we've touched on a few, but I'm curious for those living with persisting pain, what are some of the most common beliefs that you've heard and, um, maybe even some common themes that you've heard from patients who yeah. have persisting pain. Uh, I'll direct this question to uh, a, a really nice article that Peter O'Sullivan led, and I was involved with the infographic and the videos and the podcast episodes about this. Uh, if people just Google low back pain facts, um, there's a, we can link to this as well, painted um, blog that uh, nicely summarizes these. It's the myths and facts that um, about 90 people with disabling back pain came through. Um, and these myths were holding them back from recovering and we counted them with actual evidence-based facts. Um, but broadly speaking, I think the key one, the key belief that people come in with is that pain means that there's some sort of damage, injury, structural problem um, with where I hurt. Um, and that can be true if it's an acute traumatic injury, absolutely. Um, and I should preface most of all of this research was done in persistent disabling non-specific low back pain. So people that have had pain for longer than three months and don't have a specific cause to their pain, um, which is about 90, 95% of the population we see. Um, so they had red flags ruled out. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so this idea that damage is the key driver of their pain. And, and that's usually um, driven by their experience and what they've been told from a healthcare professional. And this actually my point that I forgot earlier comes back to this, you know, those, those clinicians have those experiences um, and those beliefs and they're usually driven by 
a, a previous we'll call it a bad experience that they've had an unpleasant experience um either with themselves or with someone close to those and and those experiences are powerful um so so yeah but the common beliefs that the pain means that i'm damaging something and the more that i use my joint or my painful body part um the more that i'm quote unquote wearing it out um and that our bodies are like machines and the, we only have a, a a finite number of movements or bends or knee flexions in us before they wear out um and that is absolutely not the case how do i often will speak with patients how uh, and and rather than tell them i'll ask them how do muscles get stronger um and they'll say oh you've got to use them okay how do tendons get stronger uh well then they might not know that one but often they'll say yeah i guess you've got to load it um and, and how do bones get stronger yeah you've got to load them too like we know astronauts when they go to space their bone mineral density turns to crap um, and they've got to do resistance training um, out in space and a progressive loading so they don't get stress fractures when they come back. Um, so load is a, a healthy thing in the appropriate dose with the appropriate recovery and the appropriate environment of nutrition and um, vitamins, etc., et and um, sleep and all those important lifestyle factors. Load is actually a good thing. Um, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. Um, so there are a couple of common beliefs. I'm trying to think if there's any others. Um, yeah. All the kind of body as fr fragile kind of yes. beliefs. Um, it almost reminds me of, have you heard of the finite heartbeat theory? It's, no. It's nuts. It's like similar. We have a finite number of heartbeats gotcha. available yeah. throughout our lifetime. And it's, it's interesting how this kind of theme of body as machine, uh, you know, body is fragile. It's like we're a, a car. We have a certain amount of wear and tear. And as mm -hmm. we age, things just get worse. It's just mm. embedded throughout all these narratives. And it, I notice it can creep up here and there in different uh, kind of conditions or mm. different like clinical scenarios, even without clinicians being aware of it. I can yes. note my own kind of reflective practice where it can come up in like um, osteoarthritis Yes. Even though I had an understanding that low back pain, persisting low back pain, you know, you actually have to load, like it's, it's helpful to load, but then mm. with a condition like osteoarthritis based on my own teaching and, and what I was taught, it was like, no, you got to like respect it and be mindful of, you know, impact and, and be mindful mm. of loading. And I had a more protective stance towards that. Have you also noticed any like patterns or similarities with that body as machine it's so seductive. It's just like reducing the complexity into like one little yeah. anatomical causal yeah. factor. Yeah, absolutely. I think in osteoarthritis, um, perhaps it's slightly less, uh, it's, or it slightly is more true that um, the, those structural factors appear to be somewhat more related, but not necessarily. Um, and I think the, the narrative might even, it's relatively well accepted in low back pain that you can um, have these imaging findings and have no pain whatsoever. And you can have heaps and heaps of pain and absolutely no imaging findings. Um, but in osteoarthritis, I think that narrative is a bit stickier um, that if you've got quote unquote bone on bone or changes that you are gonna have pain and, and the literature would sort of point towards that as well that there is, uh, does seem to be a bit more of a relationship, but also not necessarily, um, you know, the factors that predict a poor outcome um, post osteoarthritis are things like poor mental health, obesity, um, certainly, you know, not having uh, a, an advanced Kelvin-Lawrence scale. So having less arthritic changes in your knee, which suggests that, um, you know, other factors are in play and just replacing that um, quote unquote bone on bone knee or maybe it's not a bone on bone knee but that painful knee isn't necessarily going to help because it's not the thing that's driving the majority of the pain yeah and there's so many other things we can influence with that experience for yeah. the human attached to the the knee it just yeah. it's so easy to have that causal link and try and fix that knee absolutely and, and i mean I, exactly exactly and i mean i do this myself as well like if i have pain in a certain body part um it, especially if it hangs around for a few days, my brain automatically goes to, okay, what tissues injured here? <laughs> um, and and uh, so it's such a, I mean, pain is such a strong, aversive experience that is unpleasant and um, demands our attention often um, that of course you're going to think that 
there's something damaged there. And, and I mean, I, I work with this stuff, I research this stuff. Um, and yeah, it's such a compelling thing. Um, so we, we, we have to respect that. And that, that's where patients come from. That's where people with pain come from. Yeah. So again, like validating that experience for, for patients, clients with these narratives and knowing that even our own minds with all our health literacy and knowledge and experience can go to that protective mode because it's, you know, human or something. Yes, <laughs> exactly. If, if we look at um, some of the barriers, again, to back to the clinicians with applying uh, some of these approaches, um, what you mentioned, you touched on some of the, perhaps the systems um, that incentivize practice in, especially in private practice, um, not expecting a quick solution to a very complex theory uh, but what mm. what might be some of the other barriers to clinicians applying this more movement optimist approach in clinic yeah uh, i think um and i'll point people towards phoebe simpson's recent paper here um that i'm not going to uh, try to summarize because i don't know it well enough um, but that talks about this sort of learning journey um, of implementing a biopsychosocial approach. Um, in this case, it was cognitive functional therapy. Um, but I think not having good support around you. Uh, I think we, it speaks to you know having a gym buddy or having a, a, a smoking quitting smoking buddy um, or something like that. Having good social support, the the S in the BPS model, um, I think is such a strong determinant and often overlooked. Often that's because it's really hard to change. Um, factor, um, not having good social support and mentors and networks, and, and that's obviously a big plug for, for the knowledge exchange. Um, I'm sure that's really helped, uh, you know, certainly myself, um, but uh, kind of speaking on behalf of other clinicians as well, um, that, that environment where you can you feel safe to ask questions and to get support and support others. I think that's a real big barrier. Uh, I think, as you mentioned, the, the system and time, um, these, it, it does take time to, um, uh, I suppose, uh, practice in this way. Uh, it's kind of much easier to just get people in, do a massage or mobilize the bit that's sore. Um, and you probably have pretty good outcomes for, the, for most people. Um, and uh, that's a quick and easy, you know, 15, 20 minutes in and out. Um, your notes are much easier and quicker um and so so you know there there is certain certain time pressure challenges um for that space um and i think it's it's uh just the narrative of what a physiotherapist or or the assumptions from the public around what physiotherapists and other allied health clinicians caras eps um whoever what they do um is that uh, typically, and I certainly I can speak on in behalf of physio, um, they, people in the public expect, you know, a, a massage or dry needling or TENS units or interferential or, um, you know, those sorts of different things, maybe some clamshell exercises or some sort of something like that. Um, and to, for them, for the physio to sit down and say, look, we're going to spend an hour um, and I'm going to ask you all these questions around your beliefs and, um, you know, tell me about the context of when your pain started and all these sorts of things is a little bit, um, can be a little bit, um, yeah, surprising for people. Um, so those sort of patient and public expectations. It's almost like a expectancy violation before the expectancy <laughs> violation for them. Um, yeah. it's, and acknowledging that, like, um, like uh, the pre-framing the context that we have, the, yeah. the branding, our marketing, the person's previous experiences, yeah. I think like that's going to be a, a factor we need to meet the person where they're at. We can't just, you know, get them straight into it without um, you know, finding out a little bit more about those expectations and, and finding out what they'd like from us and then navigating that with the interaction and conversation. So there is that nuance and the communication skills that mentoring, coaching, supervision examples mm. can help with. Yeah, yeah. And the best way to find out about patient expectations is to ask them. And, uh, you know, it's a, often a question I forget to ask, um, but often one that gets a lot of gold as well. Um, you know, what's your expectations from coming to see me today? Um, or, or even pre-framing that, um, I, I suppose now um, I tend to attract more of the complex presentations and, and referrals from other colleagues. So that has almost been pre-framed for me. 
in a sense. Um, but if 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 uh, that's not the case for you, um, understanding, hey, you know, maybe they've done an rebro and filled it out, and they're rating really highly on a couple of these things. So, sort of speaking, hey, okay, there's a couple of factors going on here. Is it okay if we try and explore these? Um, are you okay to talk about this, or or what would you, you know, here are a few options we can try and address the root causes of this and really get a bit. Um, explorative and curious around this or if you're just in the headspace where you just need some pain relief we can do that too um, and, and giving people the option and the, the choice um, and and yeah often I say you know the the saying you know um, give a man a fish or give a person a fish and you feed them for a day teach them uh, how to fish and you'll feed them for a lifetime I'm much more of the second type of person um, but some people just want to fish um, and and that's okay too and that's where you, you know you mentioned meet people where they're at yeah, rather than just uh, force people to go down a pathway that they're not ready or open to doing in the first yes. place. Yep. So looking at where they're at and what they're willing and curious to experiment with and having that conversation with them. And just to yep. clarify as well, we're, in terms of uh, Phoebe's uh, paper was Becoming Confidently Competent, that qualitative investigation. Yes. Yep. Correct. Yep. I'll, I'll yep. link that in the show notes. And we had Rika a couple of years ago. I'm due for a catch-up. They're doing some great work yeah, on absolutely. how to actually um, look at implementing some of these approaches. Um, yes. And I'm, I'm curious with your um, experience and, and looking at some of the, the very real financial barriers um, and obviously not expecting a, a complete answer and mm -hmm. a simple one at that, <laughs> um, but you were also touching on your role now with, with telehealth and, and looking at expanding into digital health. What, what are your thoughts with, how we can um, better support clinicians um, to apply this with all these real financial concerns and needs in mind? Yeah, that is a, that is a big, big question. Um, yeah, look, everyone's got to make a living. You know, that, that is the, the nature of the society we live in. Um, I, I think, look, I, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I think technology is only going to... Um, be a, become a bigger part of the way that we work um, and uh, some people would be happy to pay extra to have extra technology um, obviously technology can help us access people that we previously couldn't access you know I have telehealth appointments with people that are, are not in the same state or country as as myself so that's um, opening up to potentially new markets um, and, and areas that are really underserviced as well um, yeah, I think potentially moving, I mean, who knows, there is examples of value-based healthcare in, in around the world um, or outcomes-based healthcare where people are given a lump sum and say, you know, this is how much you get for getting this person better. Uh, it's really hard to define better. Um, but if you do that in, in four sessions instead of 40 sessions and you still get paid the same amount, um, then that's obviously more financially viable in that scenario. Um, that depends on the health system and the way that that is funded works well in, in um, for example, America, where they have insurers that cover those that can afford insurance through their, their employees, employers. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a real, it's a real challenge. Um, and I think the, the last thing we want to do is pass that financial burden onto the people that the patients, the people with pain that can't afford that. Um, so yeah, there's, there's lots of challenges in that. I'm, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> yeah. Mate, I, I don't expect you to have a very clear, simple one, but hopefully it's inspired a, a few conversations, questions, and this is minds to see how can we make this work like long-term for, for clinicians and for clients and patients. Cause as yeah. you mentioned it in terms of, um, epidemiological, like the chronic pain is still, the prevalence is increasing mm. and what we're doing isn't really working in a as good as it could be. So how could we find some solutions yeah. to that? And I think one of the ways is yes, digital health community health in some ways, or yes. more examples of lived experiences. Yes. Even these discussions and conversations starting that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just sort of prompted a couple of other thoughts around that question. Um, uh, certainly around uh, the use of lived experience and peer support and um, communities around pain um, and, and other health conditions as well. Um, there's some really growing emerging research around the utility of, of peer support and, and lived experience models. 
um, and, and group-based therapy. Um, so I think that can potentially become a really useful way to reduce costs of care and, and still maintain or even improve outcomes. Um, I distinctly remember at this conference in Sydney, again, this is mental health, but in that space, um, one of the people talked about they'd been trying to wean off their medications. Um, they'd followed all the weaning procedures from, I think, three or four different general practitioners, a lot of them with specialty in, you know, weaning off medication um, and didn't work, was having horrible withdrawals. And it was actually a lived experience peer community um, uh, sort of a forum online that actually um, helped him get off his medications and, he, and he's been off it ever since. So I think that speaks to the power of that and that was totally free um, compared to how much that would have cost. Um, and then the final, the final sort of point to add on to that is I think um, we can still support our, our people, uh, the people that we look after um in in ways like group exercise classes or like getting them in and supervising them we sort of touched on this earlier but um you know having those more frequent touch points where you come in uh, we let's check your exercises let's check how you how you're moving and how you're thinking and how the week's been for you and how you're making sense of this and is there anything we can do to support you through that and having those more frequent touch points so that they do get more positive messages um, and uh, get a workout while they're doing it. And, and maybe if there's in a, in a peer environment, they have that social interaction and they feel that they, they feel less alone and they feel really validated and they have that um, journey with um, people of a shared experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. There, there is that huge value in peer support and having that community to bounce off almost like an extra safety net for them yeah. to yep. answer any questions as, as needed and, and, um, continue on the work moving forward as, yes. on top of persisting pain. And I'm sure this overlaps with mental health is that social isolation. When yes. someone has that disability, they don't have the connection points with other humans. So yeah. a building on communities, um, online ones, there's some more helpful than others, but still yeah. working on that uh, can be very important for long-term outcomes. Absolutely. Yeah. They're both invisible injuries or invisible illnesses, I suppose, pain and, and mental health. And um, people can look perfectly fine on the outside, but really suffering on the inside. And, and that's, that's a tough place to be. Um, and if nothing else, it helps to normalize that whole process as well. Something we've talked about. Absolutely. There's um, one more uh, topic that came to mind that I'd love to get your experiences and insights mm -hmm. on with, we've been talking about um, some of the ways we can help, some possible solutions for, for clients and mention some uh, kind of peer support based on your own experiences and, and feel free to um, disclose any of your own experiential violation moments. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to disclose mine. What was it like for, for you as a clinician in, in terms of learning this more uh, movement optimist approach through CFT? What was helpful for you to kind of change your uh, beliefs i'm assuming you had some belief change but if you were kind of always right all the time and never wrong then that's also cool I respect that. <laughs> uh, um, definitely the first option <laughs> yeah no no definitely the first option um i think i was quite lucky in a sense that um i graduated from Curtin at a time where this stuff was um, starting to emerge into the course curriculum. Um, so I, I don't have those um, really powerful, uh, you know, and even experiences myself and probably loads and loads of, uh, maybe if put it uh, in a way of confirmation bias, you know, I, I do this thing and it helps people. So therefore it must be because I did this thing and that thing could be anything. It could be dry needling, it could be manipulations, mobilizations, whatever it could be. Um, there's going to be an element of, of that confirming what you already believe. And then you're thinking, well, of course that's the way. Um, so I didn't have those strong biomechanical, um, maybe we call it reductionist uh, approaches. Uh, and experiences that confirmed um, what I was kind of thinking. Um, but um, having humble patience and having humility yourself, I suppose, um, where you have a relationship where they can provide you or you ask for feedback. Um, I think, you know, I think we, lots of people will remember their um, great patients and I think that's a good thing to do. Um, but I tend to, the ones that keep me up at night are the ones that didn't go that well. And um, I've had plenty of those. 
Um, I still do have patients where I, I think, oh, geez, I really stuff that up. Um, and that's okay because we're not all perfect and we should probably strive for progress, not perfection. Um, but yeah, I, I think um, the, they, them having the humility to come back or to I'll follow up with an email or they'll follow up with me or they just won't come back. And, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of those as well. Um, but having them teach me and, and often it's a misunderstanding, you know, they, they'll come back and say, oh, I, you know, I've, I've got pain in my knee and um, my knees, you know, that's where the problem is. Uh, it's not in my head, for example. Um, and it's like, okay, first of all, um, thank you so much for coming back and sharing that with me. It's really important that you're open and honest and we create a trusting environment because I can't help you if you're not completely, or I can't help you as well if you're not completely honest with me. So thank you for, for that honesty and that candor. Um, and um, let me apologize because that is not the message that I wanted to come across. And, um, you know, we, we see lots of patients a day and, um, you know, we'd love to do an amazing job with all of them, but we are all human as well. Um, so, yeah, saying, look, I apologize that this um, sometimes that, that's a common message that people get. Um, and that's okay because, you know, there's, uh, there's lots of resources that help explain this either in a different way to what I did. And I'm very happy to share those for you. Um, or would you like to know more about those? Um, giving the option back to them. Um, so, so yeah, I've, I've learned a lot through that. Um, and then finally through, through mentors and, and supervisors and coaches, um, I think that's a, a really important way to learn and, and having people sit in with you and you sitting in with other people. Uh, I was very, very, very fortunate to be able to sit in with, with Professor Peter O'Sullivan and Dr. JP Canero and, um, you know, all the, the incredible treating clinicians um, throughout my PhD. Um, learned a ton from those, um, even just um, meetings with different people that um, we collaborated with uh, and bouncing ideas and, and maintaining this really curious um, beginner's mind uh, to, to consistently learn. I think that's a useful frame of mind or a useful uh, yeah, mindset to have that kind of growth mindset. There's that continual curiosity throughout the mm. process and having the humility to reflect on all the, the good, the bad, the, we learn best from mistakes. So it helps to have, I think, appreciate your vulnerability and, and, and openness in expressing that because it can be so easy to, from the outside, see just the, the highlights or um, think that you're the only clinician that's applying and practicing this way and then making mistakes. And then it's kind of, you put the onus all on you and there's so many other variables when it comes to outcomes. Yeah. And again, it helps to have, I wonder if we had our own kind of peer supervision and reflecting on our own support groups, as we talked about with, with patients, if we can have that for yeah. our clinical uh, practice, the, the value that that would mean to, again, normalize mistakes and being wrong and growing and learning from that process. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's super valuable. Okay. That was an amazing chat. I really appreciate and loving all the hard work that you're doing and um, for the listeners who are keen to reach out and also hear more about your your projects, where can people find you and what what's up and yeah. coming for you now? Sure, sure. And, and maybe before I do that, just to touch on that that final process, um, that final comment you made um, before, is I don't think this is an easy process. Um, you know what we're doing is 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 hard. I mean, if it was easy, we wouldn't have this massive problem, the most disabling health condition on the planet. In terms of years lived with disability, low back pain, um, and and you know other musculoskeletal pain and other chronic pain, you know that's one in it affects one in five people and, and costs more than cancer, more than diabetes in terms of economic costs. So it's a it's a really hard space to work in. So being kind to ourselves and and uh, understanding that you know we if there was a really really hard skill, um, I don't know, juggling on a unicycle, uh, we wouldn't beat ourselves up if we couldn't do that first go. Uh, that takes practice and persistence and supervision and coaching and so on and so forth. So being kind to ourselves, I think, is an important message. Um, in terms of where people can find me, um, yeah, I'm, I'm relatively active on, on the socials at um, K Wernley Physio. Um, things, projects coming up, uh, as I mentioned, moving into digital health um, space and, and working on a startup for people with endometriosis. Uh, which is another really underserviced population. Um, and yeah, we, we sort of um, think that digital health can really help um, support these people through their uh, really challenging diagnostic journey. Um, 
uh, working in a mental health startup as well. So that's a, an exciting place. Um, yeah, learning lots about digital health and, and a few other research um, projects uh, on the go as well. There's a really cool paper that I'm that I'm working on. Uh, I'd like to um, put some more time into uh, that looks at the first cognitive functional therapy session, um, as well as understanding more around the psychological factors that relate to changes in movement and posture. So there's a couple more really cool bits of um, data that we can um answer some of our clinical questions with um that uh, are in the pipeline so there there are a few things that um are exciting for me mate you don't stop i'm, <laughs> I'm excited and and really appreciate your your passion and again all that you do for the industry so appreciate your time and expertise and mate keep it up thank you thanks thanks to yeah, absolutely. And there's lots of balance in there as well. I definitely might make time for uh, fun stuff and relaxation and exercise and all those sorts of things. So it's not all go, go, go. Yeah, that's important to know <laughs> as well. Uh, Self-confessed, sometimes workaholic. So yeah, appreciate absolutely. that. Absolutely. No Thanks worries. Again. Cheers.